your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. On October 28, 1956, Elvis Presley appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and thrilled the crowd with Hound Dog Man. What was unique about this appearance? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also call us there, of course, with science questions, or you can text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. My belief is that chemistry is the central science that ties all of the others together. And if you have a good grasp of what uh, molecules can and cannot do, you have a pretty good idea of what can and cannot happen in the real world. As you can imagine, this past week, uh, with my colleagues in my office, we have spent a great deal of time answering questions about uh, the new vaccine that is being rolled out. There are concerns, uh, some legitimate, of course, some not. There are the vaccine deniers or the anti-vaxxers, as they have come to be called. And then there are the vaccine hesitants. Now, these are two totally different kinds of populations. The vaccine deniers, I think, are scientifically uh, illiterate. They do not understand what vaccines are all about. Uh, they believe in conspiracy theories. They are followers of Andrew Wakefield, uh, who uh, basically had his medical license removed and was kicked out of England for his fraudulent paper linking autism to, to vaccines. So uh, we don't even deal with the uh, anti-vaxxers. This is a lost cause. But then there are the uh, people who have hesitancy about getting the vaccine. And that is certainly understandable because we are dealing here with a vaccine that has been uh, rolled out in a very, very short time, just nine months from the beginning to today. And that is uh, quite spectacular when you consider that before this, I think the shortest time was about five years that a vaccine was produced. And many took 10 to 20 years before they managed to hit the market. Understandably, people have questions about this uh, short time span, thinking that perhaps there were too many shortcuts that were taken, that there was political interference in, in the vaccine, uh, especially in the U.S. with the, the uh, federal government pushing to get this vaccine out there even before the last election in order to boost Trump's chances. You have to understand that uh, the development of this vaccine did not start from scratch when we first heard about this terrible, strange pneumonia that was coming out of Wuhan. Vaccines have been around a long time. Uh, we go back to Edward Jenner and his cowpox vaccine in order to uh, get rid of smallpox, and eventually, of course, it uh, resulted in the eradication of smallpox from, from the world. Uh, so there's hundreds of years of, of effort behind developing vaccines. Now, what is new about the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine is that they use a new technology, a different kind of platform, which is based on messenger RNA. This has not been done in humans before, 
although it certainly has been done in veterinary medicine. But the uh, exploration of this uh, platform did not begin uh, with the new coronavirus. This has been ongoing for a couple of decades uh, with uh, research into the Ebola virus, the Zika uh, virus, and now it was um, put to use against the coronavirus. The first question that usually comes up uh, by people who are worried is that there might be some sort of interference with our DNA. Now, DNA, of course, is the molecule that is commonly talked about as the blueprint of life. And indeed, everything that we are, from the, our hair distribution to the color of our eyes, and certainly to, to uh, our, our bone structure, our fat deposition, uh, maybe even uh, many aspects of our, our brain power, are dictated by the code in DNA. That code tells the body what proteins to produce, and proteins really are the most important molecules in, in the body. So messing around with DNA, uh, of course, is potentially problematic because we know that cancers start by some sort of mutation in, in the DNA. So certainly any uh, concern about interference with our DNA is, is reasonable. However, in this case, with messenger RNA, uh, those concerns are not founded scientifically. Messenger RNA does not get incorporated into DNA in, in any fashion whatsoever. DNA is located in the nucleus of, of the cell, and the messenger RNA used in the vaccine does not enter the, the nucleus. Even if it did, it does not get incorporated into DNA. That's just not how it works. Messenger RNA is essentially a template that ribosomes in the cytoplasm of the cell, that's the part of the cell outside of the nucleus, uh, it is there that messenger RNA delivers its message, and that message is to synthesize proteins. Now, the proteins that are synthesized are the same proteins that the coronavirus has on its surface, and those are the so-called spike proteins. Those are the proteins that it uses to enter a cell. So without proper functioning of those spike proteins, a coronavirus cannot infect the cell. The messenger RNA codes for the production of those spike proteins. And once they are produced in the cell, the body recognizes these as a foreign material and generates antibodies to these. And antibodies themselves are special proteins that now have the, the power to interact with the offending protein, so-called antigen. And in this case, the antigen is the spike protein on the surface of the virus. So essentially, the body has been tricked into producing antibodies against a non-existent virus because only a part of the virus, only the spike protein, has been uh, put into, into the cell. But the next time that a real virus enters the body, these antibodies recognize those spike proteins and they neutralize those spike proteins. They complex with them. And this prevents the spike protein from 
uh, interacting with receptors on the surface of cells, the so-called ACE receptors, and the, the virus cannot enter the cell. So that's how immunity is, is conferred. So there is absolutely no chance of our DNA in any way being influenced by the messenger RNA. We do not become genetically modified organisms the way that uh, you know some of these uh, um, alarmists proclaim. That is it's just not, not a, a possibility. They even misconstrue the term modified messenger RNA. The term modified does not mean that somehow it is going to modify our genetics. It just means that some of the nucleotides in this long chain of, of messenger RNA have been somewhat altered to prevent the messenger RNA from being broken down by enzymes because messenger RNA is a, not a very stable substance. And you have to make sure that it enters the cell so that there are some very simple modifications that can be done. And also the messenger RNA can be encapsulated in liposomes, fatty material, so that it enters the cytoplasm of the cell. So there's no issue here whatsoever in terms of interfering with DNA. That is just not a legitimate concern. Okay, well, we'll get to some of the uh, other issues that have been raised, but first we're going to check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Another question that uh, has frequently come up is whether or not you can contract uh, COVID by getting the vaccine. This is absolutely impossible. This is not a live virus that is being injected. It is not even an attenuated virus that is being injected. Uh, this is only... Uh, messenger RNA, which is not the virus. So it's not possible to contract the disease by getting the vaccine. Then, of course, there are all the questions about who should and should not get the vaccine. Should women who are pregnant or lactating uh, get the vaccine? There's no answer to this right now because pregnant, uh, pregnant and lactating women have not been involved in the studies, although some women did get pregnant during the study, but there's just not enough evidence uh, to say yes or no about that. And uh, more data will be needed before that decision can be made. Uh, right now, the vaccine is indicated for people over the age of 16. So under the age of 16, there's just no data. We will have to wait for that as well. Now, what about people who suffer from various autoimmune diseases? This is a concern because it is certainly possible that uh, there can be some untoward effects there when you rev up the immune system because in an autoimmune disease, the initial problem is caused by the immune system attacking the, the body, uh, mistaking some part of the body for a foreign intruder. So once again, we'll have to wait until more data becomes available on what happens in these autoimmune uh, conditions because, again, these subjects have not been part of the studies uh, so far. What about uh, the adverse reactions to the vaccine? <clears throat> well, these, of course, are possible. Any vaccine can have a, an adverse reaction. Usually it's quite mild, which may be pain at the injection site, some, some inflammation there, some swelling, uh, fever. 
This is seen with all vaccines because it just means that the immune system is working. The reason you have side reactions is because the immune system has recognized something as a foreign substance, which in this case is what you want it to do, and it is going to battle against it, which means that it is generating antibodies. This is to be expected, and it generally passes off in a day or two. It is possible to have more severe reactions, and as you have heard, there have been a couple of cases in the UK where people had um, very serious allergic reactions. Not exactly anaphylaxis, which is a, a life-threatening reaction, but, but uh, very serious uh, allergic reactions. These were cases of people who already had known allergies and generally had been prescribed EpiPens to, um, to carry around with them. So right now, people who are uh, in such situation where they have been uh, given EpiPens, uh, probably should consult their physician, uh, or not probably, for sure, consult their physician before uh, getting the vaccine to see exactly what their type of allergy is and whether or not it's, uh, it's worrisome. But uh, as with any medical intervention, it's a case of weighing the risks against the benefits. And there will always be risks, but you know we're looking for the benefits here. The other question that very often comes up is, how do we know if there is immunity conferred by the vaccine, how long that immunity will last? And again, this is impossible to know until a sufficient amount of time has passed. So we really will not have an answer to that for a couple of years. And don't expect this uh, vaccine to be like a light switch, where you turn it on and all of a sudden our problems disappear. It's going to be a long time uh, before uh, the vaccine has an effect on the global population. First of all, of course, we will have enough, num enough people have to be uh, injected, and that's going to take a while, just technically speaking, to produce so much uh, vaccine and get it all into people's arms. It's going to take a long time. And uh, it's going to be a while before we see just what the results are. Uh, it's not likely that this uh, vaccine will confirm lifetime immunity like the measles vaccine. It is much more likely to be uh, temporary immunity, uh, which will last from months to, to maybe a year. However, uh, it will have an impact on cutting down the total number of cases, and uh, hopefully we eventually get some degree of uh, herd immunity where enough people have developed antibodies from having been infected uh, or from having the vaccine to cut down on the number of, uh, of infections. But this is not going to be an overnight solution to the problem. And of course, what uh, is critical to understand is that these studies have examined only symptomatic cases. So what they have done is divided the subject population into two groups. One group got the vaccine, the other group got a placebo. They waited until there were a number of people who had contracted the, the disease symptomatically. And then they took a look to see whether or not those people were in the placebo group or in the vaccine group. And it turns out that about 90% of the people who came down with the symptoms were in the placebo group. This is where this 90% statistic come from. But what isn't known 
is whether or not there were asymptomatic infections. That is, what about the people who did not get symptoms? Were they still able to transmit the disease? Or did the vaccine have uh, an effect on that as well? We don't know this yet. So there are many, many unknowns, but this is really a large step forward. Uh, it certainly has been uh, you know, magnificent performance uh, by the scientists who were involved in this. And of course, there was a tremendous amount of combined brain power that had been poured into this, uh, into this project. And there was uh, unprecedented cooperation between scientists around the world and even among uh, rival companies. And that combined with the two decades of preceding research on, on vaccines has uh, led us down this path where we have the possibility of a vaccine that will work, will work quite effectively, but it is going to take quite some time until we know just how well this uh, works and what it means in terms of asymptomatic uh, transmission. All right, we have a lot of answers uh, to, to my question. Uh, we will hold off on that until we've uh, uh, checked the news. But uh, uh, just to keep you busy, uh, let me also uh, provide another question so you can puzzle over this one. Why are Nobel Prize winners referred to as laureates? So we have the two questions, one about Elvis Presley, the second one, why Nobel Prize winners are referred to as laureates. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let me head to the board and uh, look for Suzanne, who may have an answer to my question. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, good afternoon. Um, the first question you asked was about Elvis Presley, yes. right? Yes. <clears throat> uh, it, it was. Yeah, so um, the answer, well, in those days in the 50s, they didn't really agree with rock and roll, the gyrations movements. So there was a lot of controversy at, amongst the parents mostly and uh, different groups, and uh, he was not supposed to be filmed below the waist at that time when he was singing on, at the Ed Sullivan Show on stage? That is true, but that is not uh, uh, this event. Uh, that was uh, the first time that Elvis ever appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. That there was a big controversy over showing his gyrations, and it was only shown from the waist up. You're correct. But he had many subsequent appearances, one of which was on October 28, 1956, and uh, that had a different uh, connotation totally. Was that the one he was singing Hound Dog? That and, was he was singing Hot Dog, yes. And he was singing to a dog at that time. No. No, because they had him dressing up in a no, no, no formal wear, singing to a hound dog. No, good attempt, but no. Okay, right. we'll check to see if uh, uh, Catherine has the answer. Yes, Catherine. No, I was thinking the same thing as her. <laughs> you you were also into the gyrating. Yes, I was thinking of that. I first saw Elvis on. Uh, he appeared the first time on TV on the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey show. On a Saturday night, they were taking over from Jackie Gleason, the summer show. And then we saw him on Ed Sullivan, and that's when I saw the same thing as her, that they were showing only half of him because they didn't want to show his gyrations. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I and mean, that was a big controversy at the time, for. but that's not the answer. No, no. This, this, this one, I think, is even more famous than that. All right. We'll see if someone else has it. Okay, thanks. Okay, let's go to, uh, is that Joanne? Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Um, actually, I'd like to try the one about Nobel laureate. 
All right, go for it. I believe it's because in either Greek or Roman times, forgive me, uh, that they were awarded uh, like a crown of laurel leaves, um, which we see depicted a lot. Uh, and and perhaps the, the laureate comes from their receiving of the laurel wreath as the prize. Well, why, why did they receive laurel wreaths? Uh, well, was it not the the that was what the the Nobel Prize winners would receive as their uh, well the no, trophy, no, the, trophy no, the Nobel Prize winners do not actually receive laurel wreaths. They are called laureates for historical reasons. The question is, what is that historical reason? Oh, where, well, where, I thought where, it was in reference to to the 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 laurel. Leaves. Well, it is, but why? Oh. Why? What's the connection? Why? Why would the laurel leaves have, you know, any connection to uh, accomplishing something? Um, I'll have to go and. Uh, All right, you you it. you go and do some search. <laughs> Good, do some more googling. Okay, thanks. Let's see, Jerry. Jerry. Yes. Hi. How are you? Hey. So the first one is Elvis getting a polio vaccine. Yes. And the second one, I think, is because they won in the Olympics. They were champions. Yes. Uh, in ancient Greece, laurel wreaths made from the leaves of the Laurus nobilis tree uh, were awarded uh, you know, these, this crown because they were victorious, and the, the, the wreath was made of the laurel leaves, yep. and that including the first Olympics. And the Romans... Uh, used it as a symbol of victory, uh, crowning a successful commander. And if you take a look at some of the statues and pictures of Julius Caesar, Caesar you'll yep. see that he's wearing a laurel wreath. Mm -hmm. So the term laureate is still used to recognize achievement. Uh, laurel leaves are used in, in cooking. They're known as bay leaves when you use them in cooking. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's uh, you're, you're right about that. And the other one, yes, it, it was uh, Elvis. Uh, October 2856, uh, singing Hound Dog Man. What was unique about this appearance, just before singing, Elvis was vaccinated on air for polio. Uh, the sock vaccine had been proven to be effective, but teenagers were reticent to take it because polio struck only young kids. And after Elvis was vaccinated, in just six months, the polio vaccination rate among American teens went from 0.6% to more than 80%. And researchers gave uh, Elvis uh, a lot of the credit for that. And, you know, within just four years, incidents of polio decreased by as much as 90%. And in 1979, the Centers for Disease Control released a statement declaring that the polio virus had been completely eliminated from the, the U.S. So, yeah, Elvis deserves uh, credit for that. And hopefully we will have enough uh, famous people doing the same thing now. Uh, you know, uh, rolling up their sleeves so that they can take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps uh, even uh, President-elect Biden will will do that uh, very soon. And uh, the more famous people we get doing it, the better the chance of convincing the hesitant uh, population that the benefits outweigh the risks. Would Be you get Giuliani and Trump to do it? Uh, well, if they, if they had, if they had any kind of of uh, rational thinking, yeah, any exactly. you know any kind of empathy for the American public, uh, that is what they would do. 
but uh, somehow I don't think that's going to happen. It's also, you know, very curious that, you know, Trump, who wants to take credit for, for the vaccine, mm-hmm. which, of course, any, any president would have pushed, uh, you know, the same way for it, uh, but try to get the note before it was ready. He wanted it disseminated before the election so that, you know, that would work on his behalf. And the safety studies had not been done. He didn't care about that. The only thing that he cared was what he uh, looked like. It's also curious that on the one hand, he's pontificating about, you know, what he did for the vaccine. And on the other hand, he's saying that the the, uh, uh, COVID is, is not a big deal. That, you know, the curve has been round anyway. It's just irritating even to, to think about this. But it's a, at least it's a good thing that the Supreme Court, which he, of course, stacked, uh, still uh, was reasonable and, uh, you know, is flushing him away. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. Let me, you know what, let me uh, get another question out there so that uh, you can start uh, thinking about it. Queen Victoria apparently ate this every day. It was cut into small pieces and parboiled with a bit of salt for a minute. Then it was drained, tossed with parsley, salt, pepper, lemon juice, and a smidge of shallots. Once it was done, it was served by spreading it on crisp toast. What was it? The food that Queen Victoria liked so much. So let me repeat it again so that you can get a handle on it. It was cut into small pieces parboiled with a bit of salt for a minute, drained, tossed with parsley, salt, pepper, lemon juice, and shallots. Once done, it was served by spreading it on crisp toast. What was this? One of Queen Victoria's favorites. If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. We're going to check traffic. And after that, we're going to talk about one of the most important inventions ever to have come out of the Industrial Revolution and the rather curious way that the inventor was inspired in order to come up with that particular invention. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a little bit of break, check traffic, and be right back with that fascinating invention. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, before I get to my invention story, let me see if Josie has an answer to my question about Queen Victoria. Josie. Would it be garlic? No, wasn't garlic. Wasn't garlic. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth, what, what do you think Queen Victoria loved? Are you talking to me, Elizabeth? I am talking to okay, you. I'm sorry. I didn't hear it. Um, thank you so much. It's so educational, your questions. I was thinking if it could be Marmite. No, no, no it's, eh? it's not. I, uh, interesting possibility. I don't know if Marmite was around. The, yeah, uh, I used to put it on my toast when I was in England as a child. Yes. <laughs> Does it bring back good or bad memories? Well, not that bad. It was good for us. <laughs> okay. No, okay. it wasn't that. All right. So the question is still open. What was Queen Victoria spreading on her toast? And she loved it. All right. Now for my inventor story. We're going back to 1792. And Eli Whitney was chatting with his sweetheart. And they were doing this in the garden. And there was a chicken coop in the garden. And all of a sudden they were alerted to a cat 
that was approaching the chicken coop and started to put his paw through the holes in the, in the fence of the chicken coop trying to get one of the chicks. Well, luckily for the chick, the attempt was unsuccessful, but when the cat withdrew its paw, there were a bunch of feathers clinging to it. And Whitney then turned to his sweetheart and said, At last I have a plan for separating cotton from its seed. I want a machine that will strike at the cotton and remove it from the thing to which it is fastened. Well, by 1793, he had invented a machine that featured uh, a number of very fine teeth uh, revolving rapidly. These were attached to a cylinder, and they tore the cotton from the seed, very much like the cat's claw stripped the, the fluff from the baby chick. Uh, and thus was born the cotton gin, the gin being a shortened version of N-gin. Cotton fibers before this had to be separated uh, from the seeds by hand, and that was a very laborious process. And this machine, the cotton gin, uh, very quickly transformed agriculture in the South, and within a few years, cotton became, believe it or not, America's chief export, all because of the cotton gin. Unfortunately, there's a, a downside to this story as well. The growth of the cotton industry is said to have increased the importance of slavery uh, because, of course, plantation owners relied on slaves. And uh, people have estimated that this uh, put off the, uh, the abandonment of slavery for uh, several decades. Anyway, the large-scale farming of cotton introduced the problem of what to do with the mountains of seeds left over after ginning. Some, of course, were used to plant, so that for more cotton plants. Uh, some were used as fertilizer, and uh, uh, cotton seed can also be used as animal feed. But even after these uses, there were a lot left over, and there were these large, worthless, rotting piles of cotton seeds that dotted the countryside. Well, the fact is that crushing the seeds uh, to extract oil is something that had been known since ancient times but it actually did not become uh, practically viable until 1857. And that's when William Fee invented a huller. This was a machine that separated the seed's tough hull from the meaty oil-bearing interior. And now the oil found a use because it could be quite easily extracted and it was used for soap manufacture also as an ingredient in early versions of margarine, believe it or not. Uh, and those early versions of margarine were concocted as cheap substitute for butter. And they mixed animal fats, like lard and tallow, with uh, plant oils, primarily cottonseed oil. Scammers also got into the business by adulterating olive oil with cheap cottonseed oil and thus extending lard, the chief cooking fat at the time, by secretly adding cottonseed oil. Now this, this uh, adventure came to light in 1884 when a company seeking to corner the lard market discovered that it had purchased more lard than the hog population could have possibly produced. So it was obvious that the lard was being adulterated and it was being adulterated by cheap uh, uh, cottonseed uh, oil. Anyway, crude cottonseed oil was not suitable for food purposes because it had an objectionable taste, 
uh, a terrible odor, and a dark color. And by the end of the 19th century, though, methods for absorbing colored compounds with a type of clay known as fuller's earth uh, were discovered. Also, how the uh, free fatty acids that gave an off taste could be neutralized with alkali. And uh, odor uh, and uh, uh, other uh, distasteful compounds could be removed by blowing steam through the oil. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, this virtually worthless product before became very useful. It could be marketed as a cooking oil, but then came a major breakthrough with French chemist Paul Sabatier's discovery of a method to convert liquid fats into solids. This involved adding hydrogen to the carbon-carbon double bonds in so-called unsaturated fats, thereby saturating them with hydrogen. And Sabatier earned the 1912 Nobel Prize uh, for this, uh, as, as was stated in the uh, uh, Nobel Address, for his method of hydrogenating organic compounds in the presence of finely disintegrated metals, whereby the progress of organic chemistry has been greatly advanced in recent years. Well, this uh, hydrogenation was welcomed by candle maker William Proctor and soap manufacturer James Gamble. Uh, hardened cottonseed oil, by hydrogenation, was great for making candles and soap. And then this clever duo found another use. They began to explore the possibility of using hydrogenated cottonseed oil to formulate the first all-vegetable shortening to compete with lard. What was it? Well, they named it Crisco, from crystallized cottonseed oil. And with a barrage of advertising, this vegetable shortening hit the market in 1911 with nobody questioning the identification of cottonseed as a vegetable. Actually, at the time, there were no requirements for listing ingredients. And Procter & Gamble avoided any mention of cottonseed oil because of the common knowledge that it was used in soap manufacture, also used in roofing tar. So instead, they emphasized the purity of the product and it was strictly vegetable, along with the meaningless claim that it was digestible. Sales took off because Crisco had a much longer shelf life than butter, had a high smoke point for frying, and was especially appealing to observant Jews who followed the laws of kashruth that forbid pork lard and the mixing of meat and dairy at the same meal. Crisco was parev, meaning it could be consumed with dairy or meat. And thus Crisco was, uh, was born. Uh, people loved it because it made for very, very flaky pastry. And then a problem came up in the 1990s when it was discovered that the hydrogenation process uh, produced a side product, and those were the notorious trans fats implicated in, in heart disease. And that led to a reformulation of Crisco, and today it no longer contains uh, uh, cottonseed oil uh, hy hydrogenated. It is made with liquid soybean oil mixed with fully hydrogenated so solid palm oil, and uh, the trans fat content is less than half a gram per uh, serving. So there you have the story of, of Crisco and how it all began with Eli Whitney making an observation and coming to a very clever conclusion. Unfortunately, that is it for today. We have run out of time. But of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And don't forget to always check out our website, www.mcgill.com. 
uh, .ca slash OSS, where you'll get the latest information about what is happening in the world of science. And until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>